if you are just a small business and you've only got one or two founders, uh, directors, etc., you, you kind of just know what you're doing. So you don't feel the need to sit down and write down what our purpose is because you're getting up every morning and doing it. So I guess it's partly driven around the the growth in a business when it starts um, adding other people than the exec into the business. Uh, anyone listening to this, I'd recommend that the point at which you start adding staff is the point at which um, articulating, thinking about, testing, and then writing it down is a good point to start. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist, the podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Michael Power, who shares the impact a clear purpose made during his 26-year journey building and then selling his business and how he's taken the lessons from that into working with new tech startups. He also describes how to pivot to a new business model while maintaining your overall purpose. Michael, welcome. Um, You've just recently left a role as chief executive of Delta FS. Um, I'm sure you're going to tell us a bit more about that. But You've also, if I understand now, you're taking on a number of different kind of non-exec roles. And one we might want to focus on, I believe, is called Guide. Anyway, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and Delta FS and sort of why you left and what you're up to now? Well, thanks, Belden. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Very delighted to be here. Um, So short story, I founded a business called Delta Financial Systems pretty much 26 years ago to this day. And it became the market leading technology provider for pensions administration systems for the self-invested part of the pensions market. So SASs and SIPs, a lot of financial advisors might be aware of. And the general public in particular will know a lot about SIPs because they're very much a pension wrapper of choice for very, very many people now, for sure. And uh, over the last few years, that business has been growing exponentially. It's had 26 years of year-on-year revenue growth under my leadership, which I'm very proud of. Uh, But perhaps much more importantly, it's grown to support and employ over 100 people. And I'm very proud of the growth that that achieved as well. And during that last few years, um, the market has changed a lot, particularly due to pensions drawdown and the regulatory change that came in in 2015, which allowed people to take more control of their pension, and particularly to not have to buy an annuity when they got to retirement age and therefore they could take the money out as they liked, when they liked. And that level of control and flexibility was something that our technology has done for the last 25 years and became much more important and much more valuable to a a larger market. So the business was acquired a couple of years ago by an Australian global listed fintech business, Bravura, and it's natural and normal that my attention turns to other things when you're a founding entrepreneur and you've achieved that. So a number of other opportunities presented themselves for me. And as you say, one of the main ones is a company called Guide, which is providing online guidance to the general public, but also can be facilitating advice to organizations. So it's both a B2B and a B2C business. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could just ask, you know, when you think about organizational purpose, how do you define it? How is it either the same as or different from vision, mission, anything like that? It's a great question. It's one that CEOs and leaders of businesses struggle with. And of course, there's many facets to these things. 
to my mind, they're quite closely aligned. I think mission is uh, usually a further out objective, but I think that the purpose of a business and its values are often very, very intimately connected in my experience and the way I was able to create that within Delta. And there's many facets to it, as I say. In the past, and perhaps when I was younger, I initially started thinking, well, these are all you know big corporate things that companies do and they stick them up on the wall and everyone points at them and goes, yeah, right, you know, walks past. <laughs> uh, but uh, as I've got longer in the tooth and grown a business to size and scale, you come to realize how essential they are. And I think purpose is at the root of everything. Uh, but values are very much underpinning the sense of purpose as well, in my experience. So we spent a lot of time thinking about our values. My fellow founding director, Brian Hell, spent a lot of time researching this and looking at it from different perspectives. And of course, you know, you can come up with some values. You can get the board, the executives, the directors, even staff to sit down and go, well, what do we think our values are, team? And then everyone scribble them on a whiteboard and off you go. But actually, the intelligent thing to do is to try and identify what sort of business you are. And so in that instance with Delta, you know, we're in the financial services industry. We were providing people's technology that managed people's pensions. That was a long-term objective. It was one that required safety and security and certainty for our customers and the customers of our customers, the, the pensions administrators. And people wanted to see us as serious and committed to excellence, committed to reliability. And those things were where we sort of alighted on for the origin of our values. But I say that I think my experience is that aligns quite closely with purpose because we did a lot of work at the same time around what the purpose of the business was. Different organizations have different ways of approaching this, but there are some easy and glib ones. You know, Apple used to say, we want to make a dent in the universe. And that's lovely if you're Apple and you're doing something as cool and, and sexy as they're doing. Great. But not every business on planet Earth does that. And uh, I often say, well, that's lovely. But if you make widgets and you're at the bottom end of the scale in comparison to Apple, you still have a purpose and what you do potentially still can have social value and importance that you, the customers, the staff can align around. I think if you look at a lot of the work that's been done around this, one of my favorite authors, Simon Sinek, wrote a great book called Why, and they lighted on why do you get up in the morning as a business? And it's amazing how many people's gut reaction, instinctive reaction is, well, it's to make a profit. And I was firmly against that. I said, no, 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 that's always a consequence of what you do. It's not the reason why you do it. And so this is where we came along with solving someone's problems, providing them with certainty and assurance, because our world was a heavily regulated one, then regulation is key to our customers. And so they wanted the confidence, the certainty that the solution was being kept up to date, met ongoing regulatory requirements, which change very frequently in the pensions industry. So that certainty, that assurance were very important to our customers. And so in that respect, the purpose became much more about providing something that met those requirements of the customer and from which, as I say, the values then underpin that. And then ultimately, much further down the line, well, hopefully you do it well, you do it successfully, you spend less money than you, you take in and you make a profit. But that's not where you start by any means, in my experience. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, nowadays, there's a lot of discussion in the press and just People talking about, you know, kind of green, sustainability, social impact. Do you feel an organization has to somehow focus on that greater good or is meeting our customers' needs sufficient? Great question. I think I've 
personally been a great fan of this concept since I heard it of the triple balance sheet, which is obviously there's the P&L, the financial balance sheet of a business, but there's also the social impact of what your business does and how it impacts others. And of course, now the environmental one as well is this sort of concept of the triple balance sheet. I think any business that thinks it can ignore that is probably mistaken. I think the extent to which it's flavour of the month, particularly in relation to assessing businesses that you can invest in, is probably a little bit overblown. I think that you could make all sorts of arguments which needn't divert us here. But for example, you know, are arms companies um, things that you want to avoid because they're not ethical social governance? But, you know, we're seeing uh, that we're fighting a good fight at the moment and actually there might be things that you do want to invest in. So I think the investment angle to that is one you can debate for ages and ages. But if you're asking me, do I think it's important to a business around its purpose? Absolutely. And in fact, that's my point regarding the comparison between very laudable businesses like Apple that really you know, can and maybe have changed the social dimension that we live in with their technology over time. And the widget maker, or in our case, the pensions administration software provider. You know, how do you alight around something that in a social context becomes valuable? And say, so even the widget maker, well, someone's got to make, you know, tools, screws, um, whatever it is. And in Delta's case, the way we arrived at this was that we took the view that looking after someone's pension was increasingly important because over time and particularly now since auto enrollment was brought in five or six years ago as well there's 10 million more people in the uk who've got a pension there's now a minimum contribution from them and their employer going in of eight percent that raft of money is building up and building up people's pensions can therefore become if not the second largest overall financial asset they have after their house in some cases now and i guess with younger people and that money accumulating over a period of time it could even become even larger than their house it could become their largest financial asset and therefore what we did uh, you can say well, we just makes a bit of technology it makes people's lives easier you know but for our customers it provided certainty and assurance at regulations but it also managed their money ensured their pension was paid out the way they wanted it when they wanted it how they wanted it and therefore providing that certainty and that assurance for their customers the customers of our customers is an incredibly important social provision. That is a very important social purpose. And so when we alighted on that, I think it was really interesting to see how the staff bought into that because they could understand that. They all knew their parents, their grandparents who had money, savings, pensions. Uh, they were seeing them do that. Uh, people of mine and your generation are already now starting to sit around the table at dinner parties and people saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I need to think about something with my pension and I can, I, I'm over 55. I can take some out. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Mm, what do I do with it? These things are becoming increasingly important and uh, and significant therefore the social value of what we did we felt was very clear and, and so one of the things I did was try and bring that to life all the time to the staff so that they understood that you know we weren't just looking after people's money and uh, you know if you want to be really pejorative about it making people with lots of money get richer no 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 this was a very important social effective service that we we're providing to hundreds of thousands of people and that people should not ignore that and you know I encourage people in the business and of course in our customers to think about how do they communicate that to their families people they meet around a you know dinner party or drinks or something down the pub what do they say to them what do you do and who do you work for and what does it do and if you put it in that context it's incredible how powerful that was in terms of resonating with the staff and getting them to really understand the importance of what it was we were doing and i found that was 
both motivational and much clearer for people to then understand the purpose of the business, why they were getting up in the morning and working for the company. And in turn, that linked into the values, as I say. So our values were driven by the nature of the organization that we were, the markets we were serving. So we had to be a little bit of a grey and boring company because they didn't want to start climbing frames and skateboards in reception because they wanted the certainty that we were building something safe, reliable, consistent, compliant that was going to look after their customers' money and investments and pay their pension out when they wanted it. So hence the values aligned around that purpose as well. Um, Just one more question kind of about purpose in the abstract. Do you think of it as for a given business something that's fixed or does the purpose sort of need to change as the circumstances change? That's a great question. Um, most businesses obviously start off doing something and they, uh, if they're successful, they carry on doing it and exploiting it. But even I'm thinking of Delta, I'm particularly thinking of, of the new businesses I'm involved in sharing. Both of those are changing what they're doing because they're much earlier on in their journey and their life cycle. When you become a, a larger business at scale and more entrenched, more existing customers, you tend to change more slowly. But newer businesses, particularly post-pandemic, particularly with the challenges that businesses are facing with supply chains now, are having to pivot. They're being forced to pivot. Now, does that mean their purpose changes? Not necessarily, but it's entirely possible that some of the things the business does might change quite significantly in the current economic climate and therefore might your purpose change so for example some of the stuff that guide was doing started off being very much direct to consumer and uh, providing guidance online for the benefit of the consumer the purpose around that therefore is incredibly important because as we touched on people's savings, their pension savings, their lifetime savings are significant. And the ability to do drawdown in particular is complex. And there wasn't much advice out there that was helping the general public. And I feel that Guide is is hitting a really important part of the market there. But as the business has grown and evolved, it's already pivoting to do things direct to other parts of the industry. So product providers, uh, master trusts, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, it will have a slightly different purpose in that context. Its ultimate purpose of helping people to understand the complexities of those things actually remains the same. But the purpose is shifting slightly whether your customers are direct or whether they're other industry providers. So interesting question. But I think it, you know many businesses are having to pivot what they do and therefore, I think having a mindset that your purpose will never change might not be the right one in, in the current climate. Mm-hmm. Um, probably if some of the people listening to this podcast might not fully understand the distinction between guidance and advice and why that's a critically different thing. Maybe you could just, just say a couple of words about that. Great question. So in the UK financial services market, only about 14% of the population take advice. And advice is something that you now pay for. And in return for that, the advisor is liable for what they advise you to do. Now, that's a pretty desperate situation when you consider that 86% of people, therefore, by definition, do not take advice. And therefore, what on earth are they doing? This has been driven for various historical reasons, like the retrospective review, uh, the RDR on commissions, etc. There's been a number of changes in the industry which have been driven by the regulators, primarily the FCA and now the PRA, trying to ensure that customers are well advised. But the changes in remuneration have driven advisors to really only focus on quite affluent and wealthy people. And therefore, advice for the ordinary person is mostly out of reach. I think the FCA have now realised that. And there's no doubt that they are pushing hard for the industry to do more guidance. Guidance is effectively not advice. So you're not liable for it. But 
many organisations can and are starting now to enter the guidance market where they can give the general public generic advice as in, you know, is it a good thing to have a pension? Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, here's why you get tax relief. You can save a certain amount of money in it. It's in a tax refund. That's not giving you or any other individual specific advice for which you're liable. It's a generic guidance, as, as the term says, about what you are and aren't able to do. And particularly since Pensions Freedom has brought in in 2015, we have this now much greater flexibility that you don't have to buy an annuity on one day with all of your pension fund and give it to one insurance company and you can never change it ever again. So you can take more or less over time and leave the rest of the money invested and growing. And if you die, there's benefits for that, et cetera, et cetera. Not all the money stays with the insurance company, but there are risks as well. And there are risks that you could take too much out and run out of money. And therefore, guidance can play a very strong role in helping Helping the general public understand that without an individual having to pay for advice and therefore the advisor who gives them that advice be liable for it. And it's very clear that the regulators now have recognised this. That is not just the case in the United Kingdom. That is certainly the case here in our well-protected and well-defined financial service industry. But these issues, these challenges are being faced by developing economies all around the world. And North America, all of Europe, increasingly Asia and China, particularly China, which again is facing an increasingly long-living population, just like the rest of the world. But in fact, with a smaller number of children coming up behind it to support it. So all of these territories are all facing the same problems. And they're trying to address the way in which the general population can get information and therefore guidance. So they don't do the wrong things that might hurt them later on. So that challenge of regulation and the challenge of advice being limited to a small number of people and then needing you know, high insurance cover for that, etc., and therefore only focusing on people who can pay them more money than average, has meant a detriment, a lack of advice for a very large proportion of the population. That's something that I see firms like Guide very much aiming to fill that gap there, which is clearly there. It's clear that you, know, you can't have a situation where 86% of the adult population doesn't get any form of advice. That's not a great place to be. Mm -hmm. I want to sort of take us into hearing about your experience of the how of purpose. How did you come up with it? What's interesting is that's a piece of work I spent a lot of time doing over many years in Delta and now uh, lucky enough to be sort of starting it again in these organisations as well. So the process in many ways is similar in each case. And there's also many facets to how you can arrive at this and it isn't one single way. So initially you might be tempted to think, well, that's the job of the board, the executive, the directors to sit down and come up with that. And of course it is. And if you've got a, a small business with a one or two entrepreneurs starting it, it's very often their passion, my experience of, of particularly early stage businesses, is that that purpose is firmly come from a frustration that one or more of the founders has had. So uh, I, I looked at an insurance business recently where the guy wasn't from the industry, but his frustration was he couldn't do something. And so he said, right, I'm going to set up a business to solve this. This is really annoying me. So you can see how that can drive a purpose. And of course, if you've got a young early stage company with one or two or three people involved in it, then it's, it's very easy to start that dialogue and have that conversation. But as businesses mature, you've got staff, customers and suppliers. These are all people involved in that process. And I would urge anyone listening to this to consider the various different audiences, stakeholders to use the jargon, but you know, stick with the audiences who might have some input into that. 
And as I say, I found it particularly powerful to involve the staff in this process as well as the directors. Of course, this is usually a board activity. You start off with the, the directors saying, well, you know, we understand why it's important to have a purpose. We should try and map out what we think it might be. But I would urge anyone listening, as I say, not to think it starts and ends there because it definitely doesn't. With the best will in the world, any leaders of a business don't always know all the answers and the perspectives you get from others in this journey is really important. And as we touched on earlier, I think interestingly, you definitely need the buy-in of the staff in particular to this and therefore not engaging them and saying, we all sat in a room and we've decided that this is what our purpose is. Uh, Here you go, everyone. Uh, is clearly likely to be less successful than engaging and involving them in arriving at that process. I think my personal experience of only alighting on this when the business was larger and had more people in it was that, of course, you have to start somewhere. And so the directors, the exec team have to create something as a starting point for the staff to engage with. If you just asked a company with 50 people in it, you know, what do you think our purpose is? You're probably going to get 56 answers, aren't you? <laughs> so um, I would definitely start with some direction in that respect and say, you know, here's what we think it is. Here's what we've come up with. What do you think? What else have we missed? What else is there to that? And we got some really, really strong perspectives from the staff in that journey in Delta. As I say, initially, yeah, we felt very much it was around the compliance aspect and the certainty that our customers wanted because they were regulated businesses. And that was very much a sort of business focused mindset. That's where we and the exec came from. And it was much more the staff who arrived at the social purpose of being, well, hang on. But they've got customers and all those customers, what's really important to them is that, you know, their money's still there when they get to retirement and they can do what they need to do with it and they can pay it as they like when they like and it's reliable and it's predictable and it doesn't stop working one day. And it was from that interaction with the staff in particular that the larger view of the social purpose actually emerged from those discussions. So I think putting that in perspective was really, really interesting. I learned something from that. So as I say, I would urge anyone going on this journey not to think that they know it all and they can just sit in a room and create it with the exec team. So definitely engage the staff. I think also uh, it makes enormous sense to engage the customers. Uh, so again, we spoke to customers of various different sizes, small, medium, large, as to how they saw our technology. What did they value about us in the business and what did they think our purpose was? And it was interesting that their mindset was more closely aligned to where the directors of the business started when they came up with it, which was around the compliance, the reassurance, the security. Those were the things that they valued as a customer. But our ultimate purpose, we felt, was bigger than that. We felt it wasn't just, you know, box ticking compliance, FCA regulation, uh, 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 regularly updated for their customers. That's great. But it's a bit like uh, the difference between a feature and a benefit uh, for a salesperson. The feature is it does those things. But you should always put three words in the middle of there, which are, which means that. So it's got this feature, which means that. It helps your customers sleep at night, have certainty they're going to get their pension, feel comfortable it's looked after. So moving from those features to those benefits, I think, was actually more bridged by the staff involvement than it was from the directors and the customers. Of course, a fourth constituency is the suppliers to the business as well. So we have a variety of different suppliers, uh, people who provide us with some technology, uh, people who provide a, a range of different things. And it's worth asking them as well. We got some interesting perspective and answers from suppliers to to us as to what they thought that was as well. In some ways, they're perhaps a little bit disconnected because they're less clear what the business does. But again, it's a fourth audience, a fourth constituency that you should definitely pay attention to. And you know, if it's not relevant to you, great, park it. But it could well be another source of triangulation around what you're lighting on as your purpose.
Mm-hmm. I'm a bit curious how all that's played out with Guide. Has it been sort of the same? Start with the directors, engage the staff, talk to customers, talk to suppliers, or have you taken a different approach? Um, Guide already started with a, a D2C offering and was very focused around helping the customer understand the complexity of particularly pensions drawdown. But it's already moving and pivoting to other markets now and therefore is reviewing and reflecting on this. It has a very small number of staff at the moment. And so that's the constituents who we're starting with. It also has outside the directors, it has a core group of uh, initial shareholders who are industry leading specialists as well. So I've already started engaging with them on this topic to, to triangulate with them what their perspective is on it. And again, it's interesting to see the differences between those different constituencies uh, and that there are some gaps. And I suppose, you know, the job of the executive team ultimately is to bring those things together and to synthesize that in something that everyone can align around. That work is, is ongoing at the moment with Guide. Uh, but I say it was in a strong place because its foundation was trying to offer something directly to the, to the customers. And, uh, and therefore its purpose was very clear for, for, for it started. The, the founder, Kevin, uh, had some great vision around what he wanted to do and uh, he you know is brave enough to leave his full-time employment as an actuary and set up the business to, to try and achieve it so hats off to him for doing that and uh, he's made great progress so yeah and so what's the strategy for guide you've talked about it pivoting but what's it sort of pivoted to well the d2c element is is uh, a business model but obviously if you look at d2c businesses one of the challenges they face is uh, securing a large number of effectively direct consumers. And my experience of businesses like that is that the cost of securing those is high. You need quite significant funds. You need extensive marketing spend and the time to acquisition it is considerable. But um, even before they realized that and asked me to be involved chairing the business, uh, they'd already identified through other industry contacts um, that uh, the industry providers themselves were very interested in the concept of guidance and how they could deliver it. So many occupational pension schemes were concerned about their members being encouraged to transfer out. And so Guide was able to pivot to build a guidance tool for scheme trustees to make available to their scheme members saying, hey, before you go anywhere near talking to a salesman who might be somewhat incentivized to encourage you to transfer out, have a look at this guidance think about all the issues it raises, and then and only then go down the route of maybe talking to an advisor. And what Guide has been able to facilitate is a guided journey providing that information to the scheme members. And at the end of it, if they still think they do want to do that, a select vetted and agreed approved pool of advisors who those members can then talk to with a high degree of comfort for the scheme trustees that they're going to get the correct advice at a reasonable price uh, that isn't going to be skewed around the advisors just getting paid. So uh, there's a great example of it pivoting from a D2C model uh, to a D2B model, a B2B model. And that's proved extremely popular and of interest. Uh, and then it's extended that through those, those interactions with master trusts uh, where there's an opportunity for them to give their members advice because, again, they tend to be very low-cost, high-volume uh, providers. Uh, and again, the concept of advising those members and continuing to provide advice to those members is key to, to a lot of these organisations, to particularly to retaining those members. And particularly if they've come through maybe a large employer and then the member leaves the employer, the need for advice there is high as well. And therefore, they're providing something uh, to fill that gap, i.e. guidance, rather than nothing or only paid-for advice is extremely important to, to these markets and these providers as well. It sounds like such a brilliant idea. It seems there ought to be quite a number of people doing that, or is Guide kind of the only one in the space? <laughs> Great point. 
it's it's definitely a first mover. There's no doubt about that, particularly in relation to pension drawdown, which is a complexity. I'm honestly surprised there haven't been more. This is one of the reasons I was so interested in the business to start with um, when I first came across it 18 months ago. There's no doubt we will see more entrants into this space uh, for the simple reason that the FCA recently announced a consultation on guidance, uh, particularly with the view to saying we want more people in the industry to provide this. We're acutely aware that advice is there, but it seems to be for the few, not the many. And guidance is a way of providing something for the many. It's got some traction. It's got some markets in both the, the B2B and the B2C space now. And I think it has the ability to exploit both of those quite successfully going forward. Will we see others? Absolutely. You know, It's clear if you've got that size of hole in, in the industry if, for the general public in terms of getting information, particularly around something that we've just identified earlier in this conversation, is getting bigger and bigger and therefore becoming more and more important for more and more people, then of course there's going to be more entrants aiming at giving people guidance on that course. And I very much hope there will be. So was the way guides come up with its current strategy, that whole pivot, you may not have been involved with them at that time, but was that sort of the same approach they took to coming up with their purpose? I think the pivot part of it was born out of just opportunities that come in front of you. When you're a very new young business, in that situation, you take whatever opportunities come at you. And I remember this from when we first founded Delta. You know, initially we did something that the business doesn't do at all now. Get, did some work with the, what was then the PIA, now the FCA as well, in very early days, and then built a piece of technology and then exploited it and grew it. That's pretty common in early stage businesses, of course, which are immature in many areas that opportunities come at them and they choose to take them. But I think uh, where we've got to now is it's clear that Guide as a business has opportunities in front of it, both in the direct-to-consumer market and to other businesses in the industry. There's no doubt that both of those avenues should be exploited at the same time. As I say, a purely D2C business model has some challenges of requiring larger funding, requiring larger customers. That's expensive to achieve that. that. Um, and B2B has other challenges as well. So doing both, I think, is extremely sensible. And, uh, and so it's already become a business that has multiple products, effectively. It has more than one product. It has a D2C offering. Uh, it, and that is going to have two different layers to it. And it has some B2B uh, offerings as well. So it's got two different B2B products now as well. So it's already got three stroke, four product lines within its first couple of years of inception. So again, it's pivoted and taken advantage of what's in front of it. Part of my role as chairman will be to identify whether all of those are right to continue to exploit, maybe focus more on some and less on others in the next year or two to get, get larger traction. Those are all the challenges of running and deciding you know, where a business can go next in the early days. But I think its original purpose and aspiration remains very entrenched around ensuring that the general public and whether through the, the conduit of B2B, uh, occupational schemes, master trusts, etc., or direct to the consumer, get some information rather than no information about a very important part of their overall finances, their lifetime savings. And I think that aspiration remains incredibly valuable and incredibly worthwhile. And I doubt that will change. That will be the rock around which the business is anchored in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've talked about how guidance is free, or at least the person who's getting the guidance doesn't pay for it, but nothing's free. So where's the revenue from? 
Great point. Um, there are some key elements of it, and there's an online tool which allows you to to play with and exploit um, the different scenarios of how much you take out and uh, even how much you put in, how much the, your fund grows. <clears throat> that's all completely free, direct to consumers. But there are other things that they can then subscribe for, so that's a pretty typical model that an initial offering is free, and there are elements on top of that that people can subscribe for, uh, which gives them more capability, the ability to save their analyses, to track it over time, then people who find that useful will say well that's worth me paying for the defined benefit guidance for people transferring out of occupational schemes is being paid for part by the trustees of the occupational schemes and part by any revenue generated if members do choose to transfer through the vetted and approved pool of advisors uh, so there's a revenue share model there so there's different elements in which the business can be monetized in different areas in that respect as you say nothing is, is entirely free uh, and the starting point of it though was can we make something that is simple for the general public to to A, understand, and B, use. And I think uniquely it was doing that. And I know because Delta was heavily involved in the drawdown aspect of of pensions as well, uh, as was its acquiring business. Um, and I have yet to see anyone do something as successful and as, as comprehensive. And, uh, and many of the people that were Delta's customers also said the same thing to me. So that made me think this is an interesting business and it's got much further to go. There's lots more cool things we're working on behind the scenes. You've obviously been spending a, you know quite a number of years grappling with these questions of purpose and strategy if you think about that what's been the most surprising thing along the way <laughs> um, i think perhaps the most surprising thing is what took me so long the first time to even get around to doing that i think it wasn't something that we really paid attention to in delta for about the first 10 years that might have been because we didn't really start growing large numbers of staff until around about that point in time so I think that it was once you started getting a larger constituency of people involved that you felt the need to actually articulate it and to start put it out there and write it down. All the stories about the successful tech businesses, Apple, Google, you know, Facebook, Netflix, etc. You know, what's their purpose? Where do they start? People are kind of more familiar with these stories now than they were, say, 25 years ago when I first founded Delta. So I guess that's just the climate around there now. Uh, but I think also if you are just a small business, and you only got one or two founders, uh, directors, etc. You you kind of just know what you're doing, so you don't feel the need to sit down and write down what our purpose is because you're getting up every morning and doing it. So I guess it's partly driven around the the growth in a business when it starts um, adding other people than the exec into the business. Uh, anyone listening to this, I'd recommend that the point at which you start adding staff is the point at which. Um, articulating, thinking about, testing, and then writing it down is a good point to start. Um, as soon as you get you know, more than a couple of people in the business that aren't you, the owners, the founders, the, the directors of the business, that's a great time to start. Uh, and it really does anchor so many things. I was talking to a good friend of mine over the weekend regarding this, about the importance of values and how they help you take the business forward as it grows. Uh, and again, these might be things that you know people of my generation look at and go, well, these are just things people stick up on the wall, aren't they? And all these big companies have this, and what does it actually mean? Uh, but you know, I've learned through experience how important these things are. They really are very significant to the direction of the business. They allow you to have discussions with staff if staff aren't meeting your values and uh, aiming and aligning towards your purpose for the business. It allows you to say, hey, look, you know, 
this might not be for you therefore you know this is what we do this is why we're here and if that doesn't resonate with you maybe you're in the wrong uh, wrong hole and you need to be in a round hole not a square one here or vice versa you know i think it allows us to have more difficult conversations because that central point about what's the purpose of the business and therefore what are our values that take us towards meeting that purpose if you're not meeting that purpose or you're not meeting and adhering to those values, well, I can have a conversation with you about that, about why that needs to change or maybe you need to be somewhere else. So uh, that, I found that was uh, uh, very, very useful in, in guiding that. And that's a negative way of looking at it. I think perhaps much more positively is it gives everyone in the business a reason to get up in the morning. If you look at the Gallup G12 questions, the 12 questions they uh, originated around what are the, the things that engage staff members? And so you have a highly engaged workforce. And there's a lot of research around why having an engaged uh, workforce, uh, engaged staff is so important to a business. It's one of the few forward-looking predictors as to how a business is going to do versus looking backwards, like what did we do in the accounts last year? Highly engaged workforce is super, super important. One of their 12 questions is, I understand and, and believe that in the purpose and, and the goals of the business. You know, if, if you, if you, if your staff don't do that, they're getting up in the morning and go, well, I don't really care what this company does. I don't really know what it does. It doesn't mean anything to me. So are they going to be engaged? Of course they're not. <laughs> of course they're not. So it is absolutely fundamental to staff engagement as well. So take it seriously. It is a foundation. It's a guiding light for the business. And what's the impact been on you? How are you changed through? wrestling with these sorts of questions? It's a great question because when you run a business, you can become very focused on when you're leading a business, whether revenue is growing, whether it's making a profit, etc. And I think that having the ability to step back and understanding what the purpose of the business is will lead to those things. And so it's sometimes easy to forget that, possibly even make decisions that don't align around that purpose. And so I think if you are able to have that, as I said, as your foundation, as your leading guiding light for the business, from time to time, it is useful to stand back and, and say, well, you know, does this immediate activity we want to do, you know, whether we save cost or uh, invest in this or hire somebody, is that right for our longer term? purpose for the business and it's amazing how sometimes it's like hmm, yeah, that might not be the right thing to do so it can be a very good reference point before you take some other actions or some significant decisions for the business or even day-to-day -day ones you know is this the right thing for us to be doing short term in this particular project to hire these people to do that you know it does that align towards our purpose and our goals for the business having lived it now for 26 years uh, in delta and seeing the impact it's already having on businesses earlier stage in their life cycle and their development uh, my message is firmly do not underestimate the importance and the value and the impact of having a clearly well thought through articulated tested and written down purpose it's something that the leaders of the business, and I think particularly the leader of the business, whoever he or she is, absolutely needs to pay regular and frequent attention to. I think if the leader of the business does that, um, I found that the staff engagement around it was much higher. I think that we... Uh, encountered a stage in Delta four or five years ago where we had this, we'd done it, but other things were distracting us. They were quite important. They were costing us money, taking a lot of time, and it was easy to forget about that. And it was only maybe two or three years ago uh, that we sort of went, oh, hey, we haven't really said much about this for a while. And it was amazing when you did start resurging it and talking about it and talking about it more frequently, how much more the staff felt they were connected to what the business is doing and why they should get up in the morning and contribute to that. So again, it is something that 
should be there, should be referenced, should be talked about, should be pointed to in staff meetings, updates, etc. So I made a little point of, uh, we used to have two weekly staff uh, updates in Delta, of trying to mention it every time in whatever the concluding remarks were. So it was covered. Somebody somebody said something about it. It wasn't me. It was one of my fellow directors or maybe one of the, the managers who was talking about uh, giving an update on their section of the business. But someone mentioned it every two weeks in every one of those staff meetings. So that's a simple mantra, uh, which is pointing to don't just do it and park it, do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great, great piece of advice to wrap up on, Michael. Really appreciate you taking the time and very much appreciate you sort of sharing both the 26-year journey you were on with Delta, but also kind of what you're seeing ahead for yourself. Thanks a lot. My absolute pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.